Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're in suburban Atlanta. We're at Rivermont Golf Club, and I'm with Superintendent Mark Hoban, and we just toured the golf course, and this is a unique property not far from downtown Atlanta, and Mark does a lot of things differently, and we're going to be talking about some of the changes he's implemented over the course of his career and also about his organic and pollinator programs. First thing, Mark, thanks for having us today, and you have a wonderful facility down here. Well, thank you for uh, having me on. I'm, I'm glad to share share it with you. We're doing this, obviously, it's an audio interview, it's a podcast, so not all of our listeners have been to Rivermont or have seen it. Mark, just describe the property you're working with and some of the things you do here on a day-to-day -day basis. It's an 18-hole private club, Rolling Hills. It was the typical Atlanta golf course. Green in the summer, brown in the winter, all Bermuda grass. Ten years ago, we decided to rebuild the golf course. Uh, the owner did, Chris Cupid, and we went to a more... Um, unique design of uh, very rolling greens, a lot of uh, open green space, took out a lot of trees, started implementing native grasses into the design and it just became more and more part of the, the venue here at Rivermont. A few years ago you started experimenting with some organics and doing things a bit differently and maybe what some people would say unconventional. Just explain why you went that route and what are some of the benefits you're seeing and how rewarding has it been to try different things and, and see them succeed? Well, five years ago I came to the owner knowing that we had, um, we had had 40 year old fairways and I just felt that if we looked at a more organic approach that we could mine out the nutrients that I felt were, were, were there and maybe save some dollars. So we looked at compost tea brewers. I talked them into let me buy one and uh, I said we could offset it with the fertilizer I felt we would save the first year. And he was willing to give me the rope to see see if I'd hang myself or not and uh, it turned out very beneficial to us. We reduced our fertilizer that first year by 70%. We reduced our fungicides by roughly 60% that first year. I wasn't quite expecting that on Bengrass Greens in Atlanta. And it just became uh, an, a growing passion with me because of the instant success. One thing about the instant success, it was great for me, you know, the, the stars aligned, the, uh, the weather patterns were great for, for success, um, and that's the only caution is I think it's a three-year transition is what I felt to really get it under my belt and, and see the fruition of some of these concepts and ideas. But it gave me the passion to continue it on. We had been into native grasses and harvesting um, room sedge seed and drying it out and putting it back out and seeing successes there and just, just started developing it more and more and, and my owner kind of gave me more lead way and, and we were setting ourselves up as a little bit unique in the Atlanta area. Not to mention the, the, the poster boy for environmental stewardship. And um, I just kept going with it, seeing how far we could go. It's just been my passion and love ever since. And, and every year we're doing more and more things. I'm seeing more things and, uh, and just want to follow it as far as I can. I never think or, 
believe that we'll be 100% organic, but I feel that we are pushing it and trying to see how far indeed we can go. Where does this passion come from? Was there a particular person or a particular thing you've seen throughout the course of your career that really got you interested in organics and trying things a bit differently? Well, from a bit differently, my first boss was Palmer Maples Jr. and, and uh, you know, past president of the National Golf Course Superintendents and I was his first assistant ever and he liked to experiment with stuff. We would try different rye uh, plots on greens and rate them and so he got me involved with that and testing with the University of Georgia system on uh, different herbicide treatments for some of the problems that we were facing back in the early 70s and that, that got my interest in research uh, peak and it just kind of went from there. I be became the superintendent there at um, this particular club, the Sander Club, back in in 1976 and my first job there was to spray all the greens with glyphosate, take out the Bermuda and convert them to uh, Pencross bent grass and then I find the, the the flip side 39 years later I'm spraying my bent grass greens with glyphosate to take out the bent grass and convert to Tifigal Bermuda grass. Today we saw some interesting things when we were touring the golf course. Biochar plots, brown sand, lots of broom sedge. To you, what are some things you've tried recently that maybe are something you want to learn more about or something that you think might work on a wide scale? Well, um, you mentioned biochar. Um, biochar is just cooked wood up to 700, 900 degrees Celsius in an oxygen free environment and it just creates this incredible amount of pore space, micropores. I call it condos for microbes. And when you charge this biochar with my micros, mycorrhizae, and nutrients, it becomes their condo where they can um, kind of colonize and, and create an environment in the soil that, uh, that is quite long-lived. It, it won't break down like humus will after a fashion in soil and it becomes a really bio energy in the soil. Um, and we're seeing, in certainly in the organic uh, farming, they're seeing just some incredible results with just some uh, minor applications. Um, so I've got my hands on some and tried some plots this fall just to see. And I was surprised at the early and quick green up, uh, just getting ready for my Bermuda grass in October and November to go into dormancy. So that was kind of a huh, look at this, and coming out of dormancy, I was expecting to see maybe an earlier green up, didn't see it, but I am seeing some, some signs of, uh, there's some other things going on. Uh, saw some spring dead spot in areas where we didn't treat, coming right up against the plots, but not into them, doing some work with some thermal compost, seeing the same kind of results where we treated no, no spring dead spot. Not, you know, it, it's interesting, I'm not m making testimonials here, but, it's something I'm going to follow up on and, and kind of really jazzed about. We're able to work with a company that is allowing me, we're building some new teas to incorporate some of this, this biology into, the, into these uh, mixes before we, we grass this week. And I, I'm real excited to, to kind of see the different plots and uh, see what develops. I'm, I'm expecting to see some really good things. You've done a lot of work with worms and you're doing a lot of work with bees. First off with worms, what are some things you've found that they can help with the soil? How, explain the relationship between worms and soil and some of the work you do, you do with worms here at Rivermont. Well, the earthworms, you know, all, the, all our golf courses have them and the golfers look at them as a very big negative because your ball rolls uh, across a wet fairway and it's picking up like a dirty snowball their castings and so 
you've got to keep them in check and we're trying it with different mattings trying to drag across but I've taken samples of just the castings and then the soil next to the castings and the castings are much more enriched with nutritional value than than the soil is so they're bringing up vertically through that soil profile nutritional value uh, they're also they say and, and I don't know what the number is but they they do tunneling like um, crazy in a, in a soil so that you're you're airifying soils to an enormous degree but we have our own worm farm and we started out small because we were using it to brew our compost tea with and so we were using that getting clippings from the from the dining room and um, their garbage and uh, and using that in our worm farm. So that was kind of uh, how we started. We found it was a great PR tool. Our members loved it. When we have our children clinics in the summer, they just couldn't wait to see the worms get their hands in the worm poop until you told them it was worm poop and that kind of cleared the air. But then the parents would contact me and say, hey, well, you know, our children saw this and can we see it? So it became a real PR tool, but we're using 40 to 80 tons of worm vermicompost or thermocompost a year, probably double that this year. And so I had to find other sources of good biology compost, and uh, that's what we're doing and going larger scale, top dressing fairways and tees and slopes and playing around on the greens uh, as well with, with this kind of idea. With bees, what are some of the things you've done with bees? What have you learned about them over the last few years? And what are some bee-related projects you're working on now? All right, well, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated. I go to some of the organic conferences, the acres being the biggest in the country, and, and I've learned quite a bit from them. I found out that they have, uh, you can build pollinator bee boxes. Uh, didn't know what those were, but the neat thing is if anybody in their shop has some 6 by 6 wood that they can drill out to certain dimensions and there's 700 different pollinator bees in, in Georgia uh, that are native and so we started building those in the winter and putting them out and they've been a hit. We do a field day and so we can show people that. We have a acre and a half of uh, Syngenta Wildlife Sanctuary project we got involved with and uh, that has been a, a great PR tool and hit and so we developed that with the pollinators. I can't ID the different pollinators but again it's just kinda what I like to do is show people that we're good stewards of the environment more so than tell them we're good stewards of the environment so I like to show rather than than tell. The other point we're starting to do this year and it's a new project so it's I'll let have to keep you informed but we're going with uh, honeybees I've been kicking and screaming I'm never going to do this because of all the loops you had to go through but finding in the organic world they go with a different type of hive system rather than the industrial verticals they go with horizontal where you're not disturbing the queen or brood you're only looking at the hives twice a year your main goal is to preserve the natural effect of the bee and not affect them with pesticides and sugar water and let them live their own lives with as least disturbance and it's worked and so we're going with that we've I've shown you some swarm boxes we're going to try to trap native bees rather than get our queens from Puerto Rico that are not really but the bees are not acclimated to the the Georgia area and so that's what we're looking for to sustain a, a native population because I think they'll thrive more and I'm not going into the pesticide slant on this deal 
And the fact is, if I only have to look at them twice a year, we'll see. But this is a story that I'm, I'm going to learn a lot about. I'm stumbling into a new area, and we'll find out whether I fall flat or not. I think most people listening to this would say that it almost sounds like it's a job within a demanding job. How much time goes into thinking about things differently and how do you balance your curiosity about bees and worms and compost and organics versus the daily demands of the, the golf course? Excellent question and I'll tell you honestly, if we didn't convert to Bermuda two years ago, there was no way in hell that I could have done this. I would have had to drop so many things because the demands on bent grass in the summer under some of the severe conditions that we have would have, would have killed me. I have two outstanding assistants and I'm finding I'm having to turn over more and more of the course duties and operations day to day to them, but it's allowed me the freedom I need to, to go this other way. And so we're not backing down on the quality standards uh, that the membership and our owner expects of the golf course. I'm still held to high standards, but I'm able to go this other way and devote more and more of my time. And so we're delving deeper and deeper and educating ourselves and others, I hope, on uh, ways to be more and more sustainable. Was this something you envisioned yourself doing 20, 25 years ago when you were in the middle of your career or early in your career, or is it something that, that you got into unexpectedly? I've always thought about these things. I've always looked at the native grasses and things like that. Uh, when we moved out from the Standard Club in, in the mid-80s to a, a facility out in this area, I started looking at those things. So I've kind of always had it in the back of my mind. It's just kind of grown in fruition due to circumstances, I, I think is the best way I can answer it. But to have somebody of Chris Cupid's caliber to allow this kind of um, freedom to, to develop and, and go this route and have this kind of support is kind of very unique as well. And that's, that's been more so the, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm where I'm at. And that kind of leads into my next question. What can a superintendent do to sell this type of approach or sell some of the, the, the small changes that could lead to big things to a owner or a mem membership? Well, you're, you're asking me um, the week of uh, the Masters, you know, and, I, and I, I, I'm using the Augusta Syndrome uh, that I think Randy Wilson uh, coined that term back in the early 70s. And... Most members want their courses to be Augusta National, so we're the antithesis of that. And what strikes me is I understand the high-end courses wanting that manicured look, and, and they can achieve it with their membership and, and finances. I'm more interested in the lower 50% of the population of golf courses that don't need to be having their woods edges manicured with with azaleas and that's who I would want to attract with this, some of these ideas. We're great stewards with some of our native grasses because we're not using the pesticides or the water or the mowing or the fertilizers um, and they can achieve these 10 yards off of, of the tee. Why we have to be every golf course manicured from tee to green to clubhouse is beyond me and I keep thinking that sooner or later financially people will say okay it's enough let's back off and concentrate our funds on tees, fairways, and greens. 
it hasn't happened yet and frankly I'm still aghast at why not but um, you know it's still that's going to be my mantra and pushing it and uh, or fortunately I think the government and, and finances and uh, weather patterns are going to force some of this on us less pesticides certainly we're seeing in, in various states less use of nitrogen phosphorus restrictions uh, water restrictions so uh, we can't always rely on science to develop the latest, greatest uh, pesticide that's less usage uh, that'll cure the world or the latest grass that uh, doesn't need any uh, pesticides or, or water. So I think that we've got to look at other areas and, um, and so that's, that's kind of where my hopes are and where I see the future. How do you explain a change to a member or group of members and you're making it sound like it's one thing to do it in the clubhouse or a boardroom. It's another thing to do it out on the golf course. It, it sounds like the key is to get the members out on the golf course to really explain it, a change. Yeah, I'm, I'm just for um, showing. We had a field day last summer out here, and I, I really wanted to get the golf course owners out. That's who, that's who I was striving to get, because even if the superintendent sees some vision of this, this, how it could play out at his home environment if he doesn't have that backing. And we, did, we didn't get the audience that I thought. We got a lot of the scientists and a lot of the curious, but I want to go beyond that in our next one. And I have the full support of the Georgia superintendents backing it for 2018. And, and that's, again, my hope. What's next for you, Mark? What, what do you want to try next? What do you want to achieve next? Is there, is there a message you want to get out in the next five to ten years? Yeah, I want to see other superintendents trying it on an area. Uh, whether they take one T out of their 70 or 80 T's they might have and saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go towards an organic approach. I'm not gonna cold cock it and, and switch, but I'm gonna try to advance and learn something from it. I'm not gonna wait till I'm forced by regulation or science to do something drastic. I, I would like to see more people at least make some attempts and share those things. That's the thing that we all as superintendents, I think we owe it to each other to experiment and I think there's a lot of people that are pioneers in it. I think David Stone at the Honors has done it for his whole career and he shared that kind of information and that's what I want to see with my fellow superintendents. You know, that's my approach now is see if we can take a hole and not use any anything uh, that's not organic. Uh, and it's challenging because weed control is so tough an issue and I'm not there yet and I don't pretend to be but we certainly have reduced the inputs and I think those are ideas and, and way beyond anything that I have as an idea is out there that uh, that we all can benefit from. Has there been a moment where you've been riding the golf course or walking around with somebody on the golf course or walking the golf course, it really hit you that something you tried worked? Yes, every day, um, as cliche as that might sound, I mean, with the native grasses, the fluorescence in the morning, the different seasons, I mean, every 30 days something is different out there. It's not green in the summer, brown in the winter look. Every 30 days, we have got different colors, textures, vertical heights, and, and it's amazing to me. Uh, I'm seeing plants out there that last year I would say were weeds. 
that I'm thinking, how can I harvest seed from this and spread this uh, this grass out there that I see as, as, as a valuable tool for me? Uh, rat's tail fescue. I was up at Pinehurst. They showed me uh, toad flax, and I'm like, I've got these things here. How can I how can I harvest seed and, and spread this out? This look is is incredible. Whereas I I didn't glance at it last year. So more and more, it's ever evolving, and I can't wait for tomorrow to create more of it and do more of it. It's that way. So that that's that's what jazzes me and and gets me going every day. And I, you know, I can't wait to uh, to get back out and do it again. Well, Mark, it's been a uh, informative afternoon. My head's spinning from all the different things you showed me and some of the things we've talked about over the last few hours at Rivermont. So thanks for taking us around and thanks for joining us on the podcast and good luck with the things you have going on here at Rivermont. Well, thank you, Guy. Uh, it's always a pleasure. You know, uh, you heard me at the National speak a couple years ago, and your comments were very much appreciated. Uh, I can't wait uh, and, and and bait you to please follow up down the road because uh, you will see some things that I'm talking about.